As the world begins to emerge from the cave of the 21st century and opens its eyes onto the suffering from centuries of injustice and the bastardization of what it means to be free, the new Nomos podcast is a call. A call for a new beginning. A call for the new men and the new women that yearn to be truly free. A call for us to fulfill our destiny. A call for a new Nomos on the earth. Welcome to the New Nomos Podcast. I'm Abdallah Dutton, inviting you to join me on this journey of discovery to define what the New Nomos is and what we need to get there. As I mentioned in the previous episode, we've been looking backwards to understand in greater detail and depth where we find ourselves as Muslims today. In this episode, I wanted to start looking forwards. What can we be doing? What should we be doing? And where should we be setting our sights for the future of Islam? In that regard, a key theme is the topic of Mu'amalat. Literally, transactions or dealings. I know that two-thirds of the Mu'atta is made up of Mu'amalat, so I wanted to know a little bit more about what it is, what it means, and how it's implemented. So I contacted Sheikh Omar Vadio, who is the expert on these matters, who has spent decades studying and applying the commercial parameters defined in the Mu'atta, by Imam Malik into modern practice. I have to say that in, in this episode, we're only scratching the surface of Mu'amalat, so take this as an introduction. Now, without much further ado, I present to you episode 13, Reviving Islam, Mu'amalat, the Medinan model, and Afghanistan. This very simple idea at first, if you want to renew Islam, you have to go back to Medina al-Munawwara. And from there, the Amal of the Ahl Medina, which the Imam Jassim Tatan, your father, has expanded and explained better than anybody else. It's putting the lines of what is meant by this concept and um, quite clearly differentiating how this model takes a complete different line of development from Hadith-like, for example, understanding of Medina, and, and he did it brilliantly. That book, it circulated within the academic world, but still a very important book in order to achieve that very idea of renewal of Islam. Mm. Indeed. There's one thing that did come out of the interview with my father, and that is that like a vast chunk of the Mu'atta is on Mu'amalat and is on transactions. Based on this interview with my father and the kind of continuation of the underlying themes, what can and should we be doing as Muslims of the 21st century, finding ourselves in this world 
that is just crumbling around us where should we be and what should we be doing that's the kind of essence that i really want to get out of this well as i said earlier that initial sentence that kind of triggers everything else the renewal of islam comes from medina almonawara now the renewal of islam is the most important task in the universe there is nothing more important than that yeah it's to bring it back it's to re-establish islam has to be renewed in the sense of brought back not in the sense of, of changing it, but brought back. And what is the, the, the method? And why this sentence is so significant is because all the contemporaries have taken for granted the thesis of the reformers, the so-called Islamic reformers, which is equals the, the idea of Christian reformation, which has almost similar patterns in terms of uh, the elimination of the social aspects of the religion and the over-focus on personal morality and uh, rationality. Everything is, is open to interpretation. They don't accept mathabs, they don't accept uh, tafsir. So you read the Quran and you make your own interpretation, just like the Protestants. They reject all the traditional canonical law of the Catholic Church, and they said to themselves, we read the Bible and we make their own interpretation. And that's why there are 2,500 different Protestant churches everybody has their own interpretation. Wow. Is, so they opened the door to that. And, and, and from this thesis emerged this uh, concept um, of Islamization, no? which at first sounds like something beautiful. Yeah. Islamization, everybody wants more Islam, but it's not how it sounds. It's, uh, it's more the compliance to Western way of thinking which manifested in things like Islamic banking, Islamic constitution, Islamic human rights, Islamic credit cards, Islamic uh, stock exchange, Islamic everything. <laughs> yeah. There was no limit to it. And that was the background. And this was an accepted thesis in, in very important countries, like uh, well, all of them, Malaysia, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, et cetera, et cetera. They all were taking this thesis. When it came to economics, for example, there was an absolute consensus on the fact that um, capitalism is the natural way of being, and then Islam comes in order to provide some morality on the basis of an already given thesis, and which is capitalism itself. So this idea was never to make uh, capitalism compliant to the Sharia, but rather making the Sharia compliant to capitalism. What they did is to change Islamic law and to adapt it to whatever it is that they wanted to Islamize. And, and it wasn't that kind of a um, complicated system. It's just, it was um, a hadith self-service. And like uh, I get a, a little bit of this, a little bit of this, half of that, and a quarter of that, and I don't, I'm not interested in all these other ones. <laughs> you know, it's like you will pick up a meal in a self-service, and, uh, and they took it all together. They interpreted anywhere they wished to. They created principles out of it, and then the principles themselves were elastically accommodated to whatever it is that they want to Islamize. The result was something weird, so totally weird, a new language to describe uh, religion and matters of the deen, in which quite openly they were saying, uh, well, um, this, is, this is, uh, is, is more halal, no? or, uh, or this is, is not as haram as the other one. I call this thing the elasticity of, of halal and haram, no? it's like a 50% halal. I mean, what is this? No? But it was 
openly used in discussions and, and say, but we are more Islamic than you. What is the meaning of that? What you notice in the writings of uh, Iman Jasindat and your father, Sheikh Abdul Haqbiuli, and others who have contributed to this, a large group of people, when you put them all together, is that we came from a different perspective to Medina al-Munawara. This is because Sheikh al apart from having an insight on these matters, which is incredibly remarkable, a gift of, of Allah for us, uh, he was a Sufi too. So he, he made very clear to everybody that if you were to understand Medina al-Munawara, you have to love its people. Loving its people, is, there's a very different thing to look at Benin al-Munawara from an anthropological, cold perspective of uh, what it is that these people have and don't have, always, inevitably, using uh, anachronisms in terms of uh, the interpretation of events that they have nothing to do with how these people live. So something like, for example, in Hadith, and Rasul Salam said that this person gives two dinars to this other person. And the, and the reader says, well, dinar is like the US dollar, <laughs> like that. No? Or somebody says, and then they went to the souk. So the interpretation of well, the souk in those days it was the souk because, you know, sixth century, they didn't know how to make a carrefour. But today's carrefour clearly liked it. And this sentence I'm about to tell you, it was said to me by a mufti. And uh, hold on, <laughs> fasten your seatbelts. No? <laughs> and he said, this man said to me, uh, when Hadija gave the first uh, loan of Kirat to Rasul Salam, that was Islamic banking. Ooh, End ooh. of the argument. <laughs> this, is a kind of, this is kind of majestic invention, you know, but he was very proud. Of, he had discovered some kind of secret in the universe. This is how they've done it. It's not, it's not uh, something very profound and on the matter. It's just simply, simply just making jumps. So when Sakhalikar makes this sentence, again, to renew Islam, you have to go back to the Amal of the Ahlan Medina. He was unique in a context of a world who had already accepted this idea of Islamization that was in practice everywhere. And the consequences of Sakhalikar's statements are manifold. Okay? One are from the pure point of view of the law, some are the implications that it has in how do you interpret the Sharia in practical terms. They have historical consequences in understanding things like, for example, that the institutions, modern institutions that are difficult to comprehend without Medina as a model, such as, for example, constitutions, legal systems, etc., in place in Muslim countries today. And then the actual implementation of things, which is part of the work I've been doing, is to, and what is a souk, and what is a dinar, and what is a caravan, and what is a caravanserai, etc., etc. This was the unfolding of that statement. And so the result is, his statement, it was indeed revolutionary. Yeah. You've, you've sparked something in my mind just now. I recorded an interview with Dr. Ali on, on Sultan Abdul Hamid, Rahimullah, as a case study. So post-Tanzimat era, he inherits an already crippled empire, which he then removes the constitution, suspends the parliament, and takes on the full authority of the position of caliph. And he takes the empire forward into modernity, but with the deen first and foremost. And I think that's something that I'd also like to tap into your knowledge in the sense of how do we take the deen in our modern time 
and move it forward. Okay, let's take the topic of constitutionalism in the light of the Amal of the Ahl al-Medina. When we say the Amal of the Ahl al-Medina, what we are saying is that there is an Islamic model. There is a social model, a political model, a living model of society. This is important because it doesn't matter how do you want to interpret any hadith and any text of law, any reference to Islam, you always need a context in which to interpret it. Mm. The idea, for example, of taking one sentence and you remove all the context in which it was, it was said is eliminating its meaning. You have to understand what it meant in that society, that very sentence. And often it refers to institutions, etc., etc. So the model is fundamental. In order to revive something without a model, it's practically impossible because you don't know where to go. It's, it's like um, trying to cure a person without understanding of what is health. Well, you can try to eliminate the illness, but you don't know where to end and where to go. What is actually health? Where the symptoms remain pathological and when it's just normal, you need a model. The model is necessary. And this was eliminated. So to bring back this template, it means that you have the basis of a society that it was the most perfect society in history. So history is not the progress. And somewhere in the future, it's going to get better and better and better. Our, our interpretation of history is that the best society ever has already happened. And, and what we have from that kind of high peak of human history, which is Medina and Munawara, at the very moment of the death of Rasulullah because he said, I have completed it now. So that is the moment where it's done. And that's why the first three generations are very important. Because up until then, it's still Islam was information. So when you actually see the whole thing, the whole picture done, is precisely when he says, and now the thing is complete. And that the first generation, second, Sahaba, Tabin, Tabin, Tabin. So these three generations represent Islam as its peak. Then you have a gentle decline with ups and downs. So you have a spectacular rise with Al-Andalus, and then it falls down, the Ottomans come in, etc., this and the other. So it goes up and down, but gently declining. Now, when it comes to the legal systems, constitutions represent something very particular in the history of mankind. It's not that we had constitutions since the day of Adam and Eve. That's absolutely completely wrong. <laughs> Constitution is, is a phenomenon that has particularly to do with uh, the rising of humanism in Western Europe, French Revolution, American Revolution, where a man uh, sees to themselves, quite literally, uh, up until now, we had God who told us what to do, but now we have grown up, we are not children anymore, as the and uh, now we can make ourselves, we can tell ourselves what is wrong. From there emerges the idea that we will legislate, we will create something like, like the Bible or the Quran or the normative power of society that before it was in the hands of religion, now it will be in the hands of these rationalistic individuals who are going to provide the basis to dictate right or wrong. So from the very start, constitutionalism is anti-religion. It comes with the necessary condition of elimination of the normative power of religion. It follows quite naturally that you cannot speak about an Islamic constitution because it's a contradiction of terms. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but this is not known to the people who are Islamizing everything today. Like I mean, something similar would be Islamic banking. No? But in the case of constitution, it's quite particularly clear that it it comes in order to replace in the normative power, especially on social matters. So in other words, nobody cares where you go to worship on Sunday, Fridays, or Saturdays. They don't care how you dress or what you eat. 
The only thing they get is the money. And these uh, circumstances, these matters, which is what Muhammad is about, in other words, all the social relationships of people, that interaction of people, that will be secularized. The idea of secularism and constitution is like hand to hand, it's like a, the, the two faces of the same coin. It would be something like Islamic secularism, again, another contradiction. <laughs> well, there are some people who speak this way. So some people have come to me and say, I'm a Muslim secular. And I thought, oh my God. It's because they don't know either. It's not, yeah. They don't know what secularism is and they don't understand what Islam is either. Yeah. It, so the Islamic constitution became the constitutions in general, we became the, the stamp upon which uh, the new world order was going to be established. Like, for example, in the case of Turkey, constitutionalism was the, the headlines of everybody who opposed the caliphate. So it's uh, the, the constitutionalists were the secularists. And uh, it, some people get confused because they speak. Uh, but the, you can see in this text, they mention the word Khalifa. And the word speaking of the name of Khalifa, a constitutional Khalifa, like the Queen of England. She's not a queen. <laughs> you know, she's just there for opening ribbons and, and this. And that's what they wanted to see the Caliphate like. So you know, those who don't see anything at all, but they still get confused with those terms, clearly was the removal of the caliphate and the replacing of Islamic law with this new constitution that represented a rationalization of behavior, which is more or less in the lines of the Declaration of Human Rights. It's all to do with individual personal rights. How about, for example, the question of riba, banking, taxation, monopolies, is a violation of human rights to practice usury. Oh. I mean, have you ever seen anything like this? No, of course not. Or the practice of private banking and the capacity of fractional reserve banking is, is inhuman. Not such thing. Or taxation, the way Islam, for example, so clearly says there's no taxation other than zakat. Definitely there is no taxation in commerce and there is no taxation in, in income tax. Any government that taxes the income tax of the people is a parasite tyranny against uh, the right uh, of uh, freedom of every individual. Not such thing. And more, we could go into, the, into, into an understanding of the commons, the, how they nationalized, took over, privatized, etc. Things that they belong to people. Nobody cares about that because it was a liberal interpretation of society. In other words, it is impossible to disassociate the creation of constitutions and the idea behind from liberalism, which is another word for capitalism. It seems you cannot disassociate it. Every time you start about human rights, we should say capitalist human rights or liberal, which is exactly the same idea. There is a big history behind this. And for example, the case of Spain, how Spain uh, fought against liberalism. Unlike the rest of Europe, Europe adopted liberalism like a matter of fact. But Spain was different because Spain had 800 years of Islam. It had a, a legislative uh, body which was entirely different. It was foral, no? la ley foral, municipalities. It was not centralized, it was entirely different. It, you can see the echo of Islam behind. For example, the great importance of the commons in the administration and the running of society, both administrative and commercial and productive level. Everything, the waqf were very important. And the Spanish fought three civil wars against liberalism. Whoa. And like the rest of Europe, three civil wars. And when they were to define why they are going into the mountain to fight against this liberalism, 
they define it as they want to bring here monopoly and usury, quote unquote. Whoa. So they had very clear what liberalism was, monopoly and usury. These people are bringing central banks, that's what they were opposing to, only in Spain. Not in Britain, Britain of course, they invented the whole idea and the French kind of absorbed immediately the rest of Europe. They didn't have any light, they never had it. So it's just kind of total darkness, they just absorb it like uh, there's no tomorrow. But <laughs> Spain was different in this respect. So remember that the first liberal constitution, or modern constitution, other than what happened in America, the first modern constitution happens in Spain in 1812, kind of the day after the French Revolution, more or less. And this constitution, the Spanish were the most virulent against constitution in the world. <laughs> you know, it's like the opposite with three civil wars, which they lost the three of them. But uh, this just shows you that not everything is an acceptance of the concept. And it highlights what is the thing that they didn't like about this constitution. is legalizing monopolies and usury. Banking. There was no banking before, not this modern banking. What liberalism meant. It was an explosion of banks in Spain, but this is another story. From the point of view of the Muslim world, it was exactly the same, except there were colonial powers, most of them. So unlike what has happened, for example, now in Afghanistan, which is a conquest process, for most of the countries, with the only exception of uh, the Indonesia, but in inverted commas, in the rest of the countries, there were just colonies that they were liberated after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. So it's meant that automatically, in the very process of independence, they were given this constitution, the format only under which they could be accepted in the society of nations, the United Nations later. And this format is, is clearly a capitalist program. Every constitution has three elements that they are identical. It doesn't matter where you go. Central bank, paper money, and national debt. It doesn't matter where you go, you will find exactly these three elements. Well, central bank is sanctions banking and private banking in the whole of the country. So it's, riba is halal, whether you like it or not. Paper money is the allowing of uh, the private issuing of money by the banks, which is what we call paper money. It's not the monopoly of the state exactly. Those of you who have studied this matter will realize that the government only contributes to the supply of money in a small percentage. In Britain, for example, it's less than 2%. The other 97-something percent of supply of money is done by private banks. And this is private banks creating money that they lend to the British people. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like lending your own money. All, this is sanctioned by legal tender. Okay, And who invented this thing? Bank of England. It's not the first central bank, the Bank of England. There are some precedents. To be absolutely fair, the first, first, first one is uh, it happened in the Vatican, which I found is sublimely poetic. <laughs> it's the, the Vatican Bank. And it, it's curiously known as the Bank of the Holy Spirit, which is even more sublime and poetic. <laughs> and this, this Bank of the Holy Spirit was the, the, the first central bank of the world. But not really, because when the Bank of England comes into the picture, it kind of makes the whole thesis as we understand modern banks today. All this is constitutionally sanctioned. This is important. And the third one is national debt. I mean, this is the absurd idea that somebody born today in the world, it doesn't matter, one of these constitutional countries, comes into the world, like, for example, Pakistan, 
is born in Pakistan today, is born into the world with a debt of, um, I don't know, so many hundred thousand dollars. And this little girl or boy is already in debt the day he comes into the world. I mean, how can you justify this thing Islamically? <laughs> it is impossible, right? But being in the constitution of uh, the country of, uh, of Pakistan, then is sanctioned as the Islamic constitution, therefore the Islamic national debt. This is the kind of madness that follows. The constitution frame also defines the arenas in which you can have a discussion and the ones in which you don't. Just to follow the same example of, of the constitution of Pakistan, the first article is Allah is the absolute supreme sovereign and his dictates and his wisdom is everything and Islamic law is supreme. If the constitution of Pakistan only had one article, the number one, it will be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> but it continues. Then article, <laughs> article two or three or four, whatever. It says, and you have the central bank, bang. And then you have the legal tender sanctioned by the government who had this and this and the other. And then you have the right of uh, taxation and national debt because they go together. Well, I mean, having accepted the first article, the rest sounds like a kind of the unfolding of the same idea. Naturally, you think, oh, well, this must be Islam. No? Mm. But it's not. What it's doing is this, this other article is already limiting the, what it has been said in article number one. And one of the final articles is equally important. It says, any person who attacks, insults the constitution of Pakistan will be treated like a traitor. In Pakistan today, you can say God is an elephant, stuff like that, and that's okay. But you cannot say the constitution of Pakistan is secular and brought here in order to indoctrinate and suppress Islam. If you say something like this, this is treason. It tells you where the God is, tells you what's sacred. It's not accidental. It's all part of, of the thesis that these people were constructing. And in, in that environment, if things are allowed to develop and things are out of the question. So the Islam that has to coexist with the constitution, that has to be inside that constitution that it, and doesn't want to be treated as treason, is an Islam that it will not touch on these matters that they are sanctioned by the government, by the constitution itself. So Muamalat, ignore Muamalat. You cannot speak about Muamalat. You can only speak of religion as a matter of personal choice. And that creates a religion, an idea of religion, as a personal domain of the person with a personal morality, over-focused, almost like insanely obsessed with personal issues of morality, particularly how you get dressed, particularly sexual behavior, and particularly a woman. And there you have the, kind of the hijab story, where it's not whether you're in favor or against. The problem is that it's the only subject. I was told this thing one time, just on the beginning of my of me becoming a Muslim. So oh, this man is great because his daughter dresses with hijab. I said, wow, that's an interesting definition of good. I mean, he could have said, no, he's a great man because he conquered the province of whatever. Or he has developed the most amazing new villages, facilities for people. Or no, it's just on the question of hijab. It shows you the, the, what has happened with that law that has to coexist with constitutions. They, they become fundamentalist on matters of personal morality and completely liberal, but liberal like you cannot imagine on matters of, of social morality. Because the same people who tell you hijab, they tell you Islamic banking. The same 
And when you look at the matter from an historical point of view, that whole uh, tale of uh, Islamic reformers that starts with Al-Afghani, Abdul Rashid Reda, Hassan al-Banna, all that line, these are the people who end up, well, they start actually, uh, the first fatwa that opens the door to Islamic banking from, from, comes from Abdul himself. And that all ends up with Islamic banking. And then you say, hang on a minute. If they are so strict on some matters and so incredibly liberal to make riba halal. And I always wonder, how do they read this hadith that says, you know, riba is 70 times worse than, you know, sexual intercourse with a mother, blah, blah, blah. How do you read that? Because I mean, one thing is to wear or not the hijab, but we are talking about something which is 70 times worse than that. It doesn't matter to them. They will acknowledge it, but they don't care. What it means is that this is what has happened in these constitutional Islamic societies. Now, I have been speaking against uh, constitutions here and there, but I was a lonely voice in the desert. Nobody understood what I was saying. It's like, kind of, why are you attacking Malaysia? No? But I have <laughs> repeatedly said that uh, the constitution of Malaysia is not Islamic. And when I was saying to them, you don't declare the day of independence because you are not independent yet. The independence of the people of Malaysia will happen the day there is no river and banks in the street. That day you can go to the street and say, we are now independent. In the meanwhile, you still remain subject by other means to the authorities that brought you this system here. It's still part of the colonial process. So all that is constitution. Oh, so, <laughs> I mean, the thing that I, I'm just hearing again and again and again from what you're saying is that there is no, well, from what I know and have seen of the world, there is no real Islam in its entirety anywhere. Well, this was up to one week ago. <laughs> it is impossible to ignore in this discussion that now Afghanistan has been liberated and they have conquered the land by, by conquest and they have said this is the land of the Sharia without any question. And that's it. They may do it right, regular, this and the other, blah, blah, blah. And they will make mistakes, surely. But the fundamentals are right. So it's, it's, and this one, everything has changed. Which you could also say, this is the time of Muhammad. It's like everything that our Sheikh was working with. And said, but where? Where do we do it? I mean, literally, we went to the Arabs, we went to the Malays, we went to the Pakistanis, we went to Turkey. But there was no way of bringing this matter forward. And, and the reason is that you are going against the wall, essentially. And then you think, no, but the, the wall is the secular. No, the, the world are the Islamists. The people who have cooked a new Islam that is constitutionally compatible. And it's very difficult to break that pattern. For example, Jamaat al-Islamiyah you know, or Ikhwan al-Muslimin, the two most important modernist organizations from which many others have emerged. Yeah. I have spoken with um, the head of Jamaat al-Islamiyah and presented to them the case of Islamic banking is completely haram and absurd and this and the other, and we have to bring markets, networks of markets, caravans, caravans hirais, introduce kirat, waqf at the center of the, uh, economic development, guilds, etc., etc., dinar birha. They had agreed with me, and I have witnesses, because it sounds like impossible. I promise to you, they are in agreement with this, and I was with the top leadership. But when they realized that 
the necessary condition in order to put this program forward is that you have to deny Islamic banking. And that is something Jamaat al-Islamiya cannot do without denying the entire history of theirs. They are fundamental to the development of Islamic Bank. I mean, they were like the Arabs didn't have the imagination to do it, but the Pakistanis did. 95% of all the development has been achieved by Pakistanis. Then the Malays join in and just kind of added their own contribution, but mostly it's, it's, it's the labor of Pakistanis. And um, Jamaat al Islamiyah was at the center of it. How could Jamaat al Islamiyah say Islamic banking is haram? We made a mistake from the beginning <laughs> up until now. They couldn't. And because of that, they haven't been able, only privately, are capable of admitting the things that I'm telling you. This is the kind of problem you encountered. And the good thing about the Taliban is that they have a clean um, board to start. Everything. It's like everything is new because it's a process of conquest that can put everything together, totally new. And it is very important that we contribute in helping them to make the right decisions. Because if we don't, I can guarantee the Islamic bankers will be there the day after tomorrow. And they will have no other choice because there's no formulation of anything other than Islamic bank. What we have put together is precisely what can guarantee that what happens in Afghanistan is truly an implementation of Sharia and it doesn't become just another Islamization failed state. So there is a task there and there is matching of intentions and possibilities. You have Ibada, which is the relationship between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and then you have Muhammad. Two thirds of the fiqh is about Muhammad. In, in order to understand the gravity of this of, and the importance of these things, I will tell you a story that is very little known, that is quite revealing. You know, the British love to give these titles, Sir this and Sir that, to the people who collaborated with the regime. Yes. So anybody who's in, in the days of the colonies is given the sir title, I mean, is question mark. No? <laughs> <laughs> of course. I mean, if somebody comes and says, Sheikh Omar Radio, I'm going to give you the Congressional Medal of Honor. Yeah. What have you done <laughs> to be given that honor? Or the Queen of England says, you are a lord. <laughs> For God's sake, it's just something fishy. Like the people, when you look at the list of the people given this thing, like uh, the Aga Khan, huh? they are all sirs. And uh, Sir Alama Iqbal is one of these important characters still worshipped in Pakistan like the greatest poet ever in existence. The day will come where they actually realize and they are capable of reading what he was reading. Nowadays, they can't. The so-called uh, Pakistani ideology simply comes on top of any possibility of discourse on this respect. But I had the fortune of being invited several times, in fact, to the Academy of uh, Alama Iqbal, which was run by his grandson. And the grandson, I had the opportunity of meeting him and give a, a series of lectures there on, on Dinar and Dirham Imagine. And uh, we had a very, very good uh, rapport from the audiences there. The grandson came to me. I met him. I was discussing a little bit the, the thinking of his grandfather. And he said to me something marvelous. I've never heard it so clearly. He said, the position of my grandfather was very clear. He said, Ibadah cannot be reformed, but Muamalat must be reformed. Wow, that was so clear. I've never, I studied this matter and I wrote the esoteric deviation looking at this matter, but never come across it. So that one single sentence that defines this problem so clearly, Muamalat is negotiable. That is where they broke Islam. It's not on account of the Ibadah. They couldn't. They couldn't eliminate the prayer. But where they broke 
the thing. And what reform means is the reform of Muhammad. Mm. Well. So from that perspective, it becomes absolutely clear that the job of restoring Muhammad is the way of restoring the way forward based on the past. And here, the book of your dear father is fundamentally important. And what Sehavka wrote is the key in order to progress into the future. And all the work that other people have written on the same direction is critically important. So we have a thesis, and the thesis is, is how to bring back Medina al-Munawara, and there is land to do it. And there is occasions, and there is opportunity, and so everything is about to happen. I did an interview with a close friend of mine from the UK, he's a Punjabi man, Jawad. And in conversing with him, he was saying the same thing. I mean, he was saying that like the, the, the Muslims of the United Kingdom, the Punjabis and the Patans especially, have to understand that what is happening in Afghanistan, it, it, it's the start of something new for Islam. He said something beautiful. He said that, what they have in the east needs the perfume of the west but from our perspective not in the perspective of of any of the kind of um this kind of reformation or anything and i'm just thinking now you're talking and i'm like well my mother's father was patan from the yusuf zai tribe and i've always had a desire to go to afghanistan so maybe the time's coming Yes, right. unless uh, the circumstances turn uh, into some strange manner. But the circumstances have changed dramatically in, in, in many accounts. And I think it's a relevant discussion to speak about uh, Afghanistan because it's without doubt the place of Muhammad now. And everything that we have done will fit like a glove in the aspirations of the new government of Afghanistan to succeed in doing what they intended to do, which is the application of the Sharia. Without understanding of Muhammad, the other option is simply the so-called Islamization process. They will have to create an Islamic central bank with Islamic banks, with Islamic paper money, and eventually Islamic interests, and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And Islamic credit cards. On that note, I mean, for the likes of myself and people of my, my generation, what can we do? What's the tangible, practical things that we can be doing in this time? Well, uh, the first thing that you can do is to learn everything about Shehavegar if you haven't, and then realize that the land in which all this thing is applicable is precisely where the Islam has been declared, without constitution impeding its development. Why do we have one person in jail from our community in Indonesia? This man, the only thing he has done is mint gold coins, which are sunnah. They are part of the hadith, and they are part of the history of Islam. Where is the crime? The crime is the constitution, defined by the constitution. Okay? The, when, when I was minting the gold dinar in Malaysia and Allah protected what we were doing, the, the issue was the law of legal tender sanctioned by the constitution, given by the British, but nobody mentioned that. <laughs> it, and so it, it is quite um, remarkable that um, these British Muslims, which is really in the bulk, is, uh, is a large number of people from the subcontinent who have now been born in Britain. They have a job to tell the people of the East what the West really is like, because in the East, they still think of the West like some kind of uh, Disneyland. 
you know, a kind of paradise of perfection. And it's not like this at all. The new Taliban, unlike the people of the past, they have learned a lot about public relationships and you can see in the way they make statements, etc. is completely different than before. But in, there's no indication that they have automatically learned about Muhammad. But it's natural that from within many of the people in their leadership, some of them would have learned Islamic banking naturally because nothing else that can be taught in these matters. Mm, okay, I see, I see, I see, yeah. So is that, that they naturally come when they say the Islamic Central Bank of is what to be expected, mm-hmm. to, to tell you the truth, unless we intervene. And, uh, in, and that's precisely the task. Now, intervening is not going there. What are you going to do there? This is a coordinated effort. It's a group effort. It has to be well thought. You have to go exactly to the person that matters. You have to know who they are, and et cetera. And that's what we are working on. And, uh, and this will happen, and it's meant to happen. The unfolding of this for anybody else that is interested in the matter is the discovery of the Dean of Islam. These, these matters have no end. Muamalat is the creation of 20 different new professions that you even have heard of, which is from developing public marketplaces to payment systems to business relationships to new forms of finance to construction of houses and the construction of cities, urbanism, etc., etc. It unfolds into a complete set of new professional skills that they all derive from this very idea of Muamalat. It follows that our first contribution in the West should be the institutionalization of an institute of Muamalat. The focus should be the question of Muamalat. Why? Because it deserves that full attention and is more relevant now than ever was. Those of you who know me, I've been battling these issues left, right, and center in every corner of the world I could. And I wasn't there just giving lectures. I was trying to put the thing in motion, and we did. We went in more world in than any other person in the last 100 years. And we collected zakat with it, and we paid zakat with dinner on their hands, things that nobody else has done. But the, it wasn't enough, and it was not, the environment wasn't prepared for it. If, if there is one ideal circumstance in which this thing can be implemented is precisely the new occurrence of Afghanistan. And you say, but Afghanistan may come and go. No, it will not come and go, because from the very instant, this and, and the context of the new political, socio-political, geopolitical structure, and the clear indications of the declining of the United States and the hegemony moving to the east, led by China, in this context, this thing has taken place. And the fact that the first non-ally of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan is the, the People's Republic of China. These are the first ally, and this changes everything. The next ally has been Russia, who are already Russia, China, Pakistan, Iran, and Turkey. There is no way on earth this thing can be ignored by the West. The people in the West can say, we don't like the Taliban, we don't want to have relationships with them, etc. But it will, it doesn't matter. Who cares? The only thing that will do is that it will put the Taliban more and more into the hands of the people of the East, the relationships in the East, the new power that is emerging in the East, which is what, what matters. Why China doesn't need the West? Because they have an inner market of 800 million people in middle class that is four times bigger than the entire European Union. What matters is to sell in China, not to sell in Europe. (laughs) If you don't sell in China, you don't exist as a company. In this context, the government of Afghanistan comes in in a completely different situation than heard of. And what is important is that the music that comes from there, this 
this um, what has been known as political Islam. Remember that the whole effort of the British government since the destruction of the Caliphate was the elimination of the possibility of a political Islam. Political Islam was kind of a bad word. And, uh, and any resemblance, any, any suggestion, it was immediately seen as tyrannical, terrorist, uh, extravagant, uh, fundamentalist, extremist, whatever you want to call it. And the Muslims will, were not allowed to express that they had political views within Islam. It, it, this was not allowed, <laughs> as simple as that. They just simply created these typical Islamic associations of the West, that they are non-political, no? Either we are non-political organization. I mean, Tabliki Yamabi in the absolutely kind of supreme version of this kind of non-political Islam. <laughs> in, and, uh, and you have them in, in, in South Africa as well. Huh? Yeah, big time. It, and, and this was kind of the very result. Of, well, if they don't allow us, then we just dedicate ourselves to the contemplation of our bodies and our sexual behavior, especially how our daughters behave. And that was essentially these people did in a splendid manner. And uh, you know, I remember still the statement of a friend of mine. And uh, he was a friend of mine because the man was still good. He was a tabliki man. He said, my 16-year-old daughter has never seen a man. Oh. She had been in seclusion in some kind of... He, and he was so proud, like a kind of, I have achieved the heaven. In, and, and that's kind of the mentality of these people. So it's non-political, but they were quite ruthless, actually. That is quite strange. I mean, it's difficult huh? if you think about it. So what's going to happen the moment she gets married and she sees this this monster? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, dear. Oh, dear, exactly. But, you know, this non-political Islam, this is over, it's exploding in their face. The existence of Afghanistan changes all that. And this is the music that is going to penetrate immediately into uh, Pakistan. And Bangladesh, and it will change India. You will hear my words. The, what is happening in Afghanistan cannot be contained in Afghanistan. It's going to change everything. And uh, and the wonderful thing is that the, the Kufar are so blind they don't see it because they still see little. But there are just seventy-five thousand fighters there. You know, we can bomb them in a minute, and they have nothing. The GDP is like less than than you know the one city in california just like medina monavara by the way i'm sure some of these kind of persian kings they saw there is a rebellion of the arabs in medina monavara and so what medina what is but love the desert i thought this is unimportant well <laughs> it was not so unimportant allah has also blessed the people who are poor and this is this is the same and there is a certain analogy between this kind of desertic, arid, nothing grows land of the Taliban and what Medina Munawara was. I mean. And uh, they had nothing, but they had the Din of Islam. And, I mean, these people were starving, literally, and they were the greatest people on earth. So it's not, I can eat and I have success and I have a Cadillac, and therefore I lead Islam. But I have nothing. I have great difficulties to put the meal together in my table. But I love Allah infinitely and I'm ready to die. Well, I have to now say your ancestors are very noble, noble people, the Pashtun. That part of you that belongs there is uh, something to be extremely proud of. Oh, 100%. The Sheikh wrote an article and it, 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 I can't remember what the article was. I just remember reading it at about 15 or 16. And at the end of it, 
he mentioned the Vikings, the Normans, and the 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 Patan. Oh yeah. And I was like, wow, that's my whole that's my genetic code. <laughs> you know, my my father's line comes from the Viking Normans, and my mother's line my my mother's father is Patan Pashto, and my mother's mother is Mughal. So it's like I've got the best of everything. <laughs> Alhamdulillah. I have a good cooking mixture. Well, I mean, it's, I remember Shavikadar. He loved the Scots, of course. And so I grew up there. In that collection of uh, the greatest people who put the, the Highlanders and, uh, and the Basque. And the Basque, of course. <laughs> I always see myself identify with the patterns because of that kind of resilience and, and this kind of obsessive way of with their traditions and customs. We have this strange language that's not related to anything. The only thing that suggests is not that we are better or worse, but that we are very persistent and we don't give up our customs so easily. We should have been Latinized and speak Spanish. Basque, the Spanish language is Latin spoken by Basque. Very few people understand that. The whole Basque country was Islamized. When I was a young nobody there to say, but up until the very, very north, still find churches that they are surprisingly in Qibla. Amazing. And you say, when, when you see the churches, and you know there are more than one, and you say, this is a church, and but you put the compass and you say, hmm, what a coincidence, no? I mean, what are the odds <laughs> to be in Qibla? The first king of the Basque was a Muslim, without any question, Iñaki Arista. Wow. And that is something the Catholic, my Catholic colleagues and friends, they have difficulty of swallowing. But anyway, we're just going into the, the, these strange people like the Patans, no? it's, it's like a kind of Pashtu. They are, they are quite extraordinary, resilient. There's something so majestic and beautiful about them. You can see their faces, you know, compare that face with any other of these politicians in Europe. Uh, no, no. I remember one of the most vivid events of my Hajj was we were walking back to our hotel from the, from the Haram. And walking up the road was this group of Patans. And, you know, they, they, you just looked at their faces and it was like, it, they were they were these these lions, you know, so noble and majestic, but also like like scary. I mean, you you look at them and you're and you're in awe of this being, and you and and I remember this one man clearly, and I connected eyes with him, and he smiled, and that smile just like it melted me. I mean, I mean, just thinking about it, I'm smiling now, and you saw that this this man was like the most ferocious being but the moment he smiled and he and you know you connect and there's just that love he's like a puppy they're so beautiful so beautiful no no he was a, there were remarkable people i'll tell you one little incident about their character i was um in Sharjah, united arab emirates about 20, 25 years ago, and I was in, in the house of a man called Mohammed Makawi, which some of you know him. And I was coming from my hotel with a briefcase, which contains some important documents to me and a little bit of money, not much. I was in such a rush because I, I couldn't find the house of my friends that I kind of picked up my handbag, but I left the briefcase in the taxi. <laughs> and so I went into the house and the taxi left because he couldn't see it from the seat of the driver. And then after a little while, I realized, hang on with my briefcase. And I said to Sidi Mohammed, 
in my car with me still remember the incident. And I said, oh God, I left my briefcase in the taxi. And the first thing he asked me is, was the driver Pashtun? And I said, yes, he was. He said, don't worry. <laughs> you have given this man a nightmare. Because he's going to go house by house find, trying to find you. And that's exactly what he did. He went house by house trying to find where I was. And he handed all the thing to me. But the interesting part is that Mohammed telling me, if he's Pashtun, he will take a penny and he will give it back to you. So this is the nobility of the people. No? I mean, and I remember in those days in, in Sarja, you would go to the mosque and uh, it was all people of the subcontinent and a couple of Arabs, <laughs> Subuh. They are devoted people. I mean, they, they have something so remarkable and you see them praying and you say, wow, this is something very beautiful about them. In, then living in Pakistan, I had the opportunity of meeting them. What you find is loyalty. You know? Some people who have lived among them, like for example, one of the members of our community, Mohamed Rafik from Barcelona, he was telling me, what you have to understand about them is that when they say, you are my friend and you come into my house as a guest, they will protect you with their life. It is true. They will protect you with your life. That kind of sense of brotherhood and true loyalty, kind of sense of bonding, something rare, strange, it kind of brings us back to some kind of ancient code of the Middle Ages or something. It's still alive from them. And this has to be seen as something remarkable and beautiful and uh, something that kind of highlights the, the character of these extraordinary people. Mm-hmm. The matter of, of Muhammad is precisely the theme that if you ask the question, what can we do for the people of Afghanistan, is precisely on account of interpreting in practical terms, and this is the key, in practical terms, not theories, practical terms, how to conduct the construction of this new state, emirate, to be precise in the terms. And that brings about discussions about what is Sud, what is carbon, what is Dinar, what is Dirham. How it operates. And I don't mean that, for example, you can have a discussion about AUKAF. There are hundreds of seminars about AUKAF. But what is important, how this thing applies, and without the model of Medina, it's very difficult to understand it, how it is normally interpreted, that is, a means of charity. So hospitals and things like that, that feed feeding the poor and blah, blah, blah. But the most important part of the AUKAF is its fundamental contribution to the economic development of the country. And this is kind of not seen. Uh. The most important AUKAF is first the mosque is an AUKAF, and then the market. Rasul Salzlan goes to Medina, he makes a mosque, and he makes a market the day after. And all the markets in Islam ever since, and I have to say, and before, they were Aukaf. What happened before is that they didn't have the legislation of Aukaf, which is what protects this common property. And the Chinese, for example, have, uh, they have a very strong concept of the common, common property, very powerful. This is how, if you want to understand China, the economics of China and the tradition of China, you have to understand the word gone. And this is another day's discussion. <laughs> but they had it since the Neolithic time. They understand the commons of Waqf. In, from the Neolithic times, when we in Europe, we were still throwing stones from the caves. 
the Chinese had societies in which the common was the center of the articulation of society. And, and this uh, institution of the commons at the very center of the commercial development, which is the marketplace, and then consequently an unfolding from the marketplace, the guilds. If you want to understand the guilds, you have to understand from there. The most important of which, the first one naturally in trading societies, such as, for example, Medina al Munawara, where they didn't have an industry there, but it was essentially a trading post. It was the caravan. The caravan is a guild of traders. And the pattern is always the same. Uh, this is a, a perfect balance between collaboration and competition. Competition, indeed, is not like cooperatives. In the cooperatives, there's no competition. They're all just common property, and that's it. It doesn't really work as efficient as systems guild-like structure, where what you have is collaboration, but competition between them. The traders compete with each other, but they have common property, which is the marketplace itself. The people of the caravan, they, they share a means of transportation agreements and uh, taxes and securities and, and posts in the middle of the infrastructure, all the logistics. That was all shared, but they competed with each other when they came to buy and sell. And the same thing with the guilds in general, when it comes to industrial craft systems, and they have a central outcome, which is what got us them all together, but they compete with each other. These systems, you find them in China since the Neolithic time too. It means that it's that old is constituent to natural societies. The Muslims didn't invent the guilds, we just perfected them. We didn't invent the markets, we just perfected them. And in understanding the critical part of the commons into the development of the economy is where we can make contributions in order to create a system that is infinitely more efficient than equal systems in the world, such as what China is proving. These guild-like structures and public marketplaces is one of the fundamental keys of how China has emerged from the self-restricted um, Maoism during the early part of the formation of the state until Deng Xiaoping comes in with the famous socialism with Chinese characteristics. I have looked into all this matter in order to conclude that market socialism is something that, of course, is not Islamic, but it is very close. It's the closest version that you have of Islamic formulas. And in as much as they follow our patterns, they are more efficient. And that's why they are more efficient than capitalist structures, factory systems that the British invented, and monopolies in the West, and the banking system, private banking system. This is all over. China has defeated them on the basis of efficiency. My point is that we can perfect, do even better than the Chinese have done. And why we have such incredible capacity? How can we make such claim to understand everything? Because I know nothing. I just have a template. Like somebody who goes to an exam and cheats, you know, because I have a copy of the answers there. And that's Medina Munawara. I look at Medina Munawara and I can tell you, this is right and this is wrong <laughs> without thinking. Yeah, yeah. In as much as I can look into my template and I can tell whether it's right or wrong. And that's, that's the advantage that we have, is that we can tell what is going to survive, what has validity, what is efficient, what is right, what's halal, on the basis of our understanding, our unique understanding of Medina al water. And the task is that our generation started by the virtue of, of the incredible capacity to see of our beloved Sheikh. It's like kind of how he saw these things. Is uh, it seems so simple, but it requires a high state 
to see this matter so clearly. And the test that we initiated, if we mean that the, the book of your father will become an absolutely obligatory reading for anybody who wants to continue in the path of establishing the institutions of Muhammad. And what is establishing the institutions? People who are specialists in the building of public markets and caravans and Kirat financial institutions and payment systems, including digitalization. There's no reason to fear like the people do nowadays with um, 5G and blockchains and all that. It, and it's coming and it's the evil. You know? <laughs> well, I mean, every process in society has come about with similar responses, like from the very beginning. Technology should be part of our understanding of how we bring about solutions in a modern world. And we should not fear to encounter these subjects because we have a template. Always against my answers, I can always examine any reality today and I can tell you, well, it can go this way, but if it goes the other way, it will be wrong. This other one, it can develop in this direction, but if this other direction, which has not been tried yet, is even better, I can make this analysis on account of my knowledge of Muhammad. Imagine the implications, okay? That we develop a, a group of people capable of defining what roots this new development of digitalization, which is much more important than any other of the industrial revolutions before, which lines of development are successful and which are not, and they can do it in advance. These people will be able to, like, it's, it's like playing football against a, a team of blind players. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like we are there playing football at the other guys, they are running around, and we just kind of pass, 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 pass the ball, goal, pass, 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 goal, because we can see. And, and that is another of the effects of understanding of Muhammad. Imagine the dimensions that we are describing now, not only circumscribed to some kind of alim domain of understanding of the thing, but I'm talking about architects and developers, technological developers, urban design, financiers, traders, carpenters, every profession, every aspect of life. And in every aspect of life, we shall be able to make decisions in the direction of what is more efficient. It doesn't mean that you will succeed. Because you still need capacities and to be able to do the things and to manage things and you have to be correct and you have to be dexterous in your activity and capable. No? But you will have the better chance because you know how to do it better. In general, you, you will win out of 100 times, you will win in 80. And that's big. That's huge. All that is part of this discussion of Muhammad. If you want to understand what is tawakkal, tawakkal is precisely do not rely on your means, rely on Allah's means, and that is what makes you free, independent, capable, far-reaching, far-reaching of your possibility, because you're saying, but I cannot do it. If you were to do the things that you can, it's so boring, it's not worth doing it. You have to go beyond, not totally beyond, where you kind of start flighting it, we went to colonize Mars, no? but one foot inside what is capable, another one outside. If the two foot are inside, what you can do is that you don't progress, you don't learn, you don't do anything. But to put one foot inside, another one outside, that is the path of growth. This has to be always the, the zone that we occupy, always stretching ourselves beyond what we are capable. And reaching out and look into these matters and to give accurate answer, like Sahabakar always did.
Thank you for listening to this episode. As I said at the beginning, we only scratched the surface of the topic of Muamalat, and it's very much an introduction, giving the context of where we find ourselves today with this idea of Islamization and how we should be looking into the future to correctly and efficiently revive Muamalat. So once again, thank you for listening. Stay tuned, and we'll be back soon with more episodes. Thank you.